All right, welcome to the Backyard Professor live sessions of videos. I have on my show tonight, Barry Richens, world traveler extraordinaire, highly sought after educator, and overall fantastic guy who has had a faith crisis like so many of us has, and he has been exploring the various kinds of lands that the Book of Mormon is supposed to have existed in, and we're going to talk about his experiences. So let's get this show on the road. All right. Hopefully that sound adjustment was a little bit better for those of you who have your earplugs. I'm slowly figuring out all this electronic guru technical crap. <laughs> I'm getting there one way or another. Um, I do have a couple of new podcasts on at the backyardprofessor.org. Don't forget to Subscribe to that one and listen in on some fun stuff. I'm trying to keep those to about a half an hour to 40 minutes. I am exploring the nature of the interesting, uh, weird, enigmatic, sometimes contradictory, and ever-fascinating world of Mormon doctrines of deity. And so that's kind of a fun one for me. Um, I will be doing some live sessions also on the first vision. I'm working hard on preparing a good slideshow for the first vision that I should have here in just a couple of weeks. So without any further ado, let's bring in my guest, Barry Richens. Barry, how are you tonight? Hey, Gary, I'm just fine. Thank you. Good, good. So uh, here we are, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and yet we can talk just like we're in each other's front room. <laughs> That's nothing. When I was a kid, we could talk across the backyard with string and cans. <laughs> with the little wire, the string? That's the little string was the uh, vibrator. <laughs> yeah, we always had trouble when we go around the bushes. It would stop, it would stop the vibration. <laughs> it sure would, wouldn't it? That's how old I am. I remember that those were the things we wanted to play with. <laughs> that's because that's all we had to play with. Yeah, so, well, I'm not too far behind you. But just remember, we're getting better, not older. <laughs> so well, we're going to talk I'm, about... I, I'm, I'm... Oh, heck, I don't need the hat. Um... Oh, you look great with your hat. 
heck with it. I'll put it on. Oh, you <laughs> either way you want. That's my, so, that's my professorial hat. There you go. Yes, you're professorial. Now you are uh you are actually you have been for your entire life involved in education, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about your educational background. Well, I just barely made it out of high school. And and I got to carry my transcript to the college where I was applying uh, because I was late. And so the lady just put my transcript at the high school, put my transcript in and didn't lick it closed. And so when I got somewhere where I could stop, I found myself on the transcript. And we had a class of uh, 500 at Scottsdale High School, but uh, I was 250. That'll give you a, an idea and your viewers an idea of what kind of man I was in education up until that time. Uh, but I went to ASU and, and I took Spanish and couldn't understand it whatsoever. So I got a D the first semester and an F the second semester. But I was in a, I was in a U.S. history class. Uh, and the teacher came in one day and he said, I'm taking a group of students to Mexico City here from ASU to Mexico City, where we're going to study the history of Mexico and the art history of Mexico. Well, I, I wasn't getting along too well with my girlfriend, so I thought, I got to get out of here. And so I worked up and found enough money to pay my tuition. And I went to Mexico City to summer school, Carrie. And while I was, while I was there, um, I, as studying the history of Mexico, I was listening to a fellow, uh, one of Cortez's lieutenants, talking about fighting the Aztecs. And he said, one of the things we would do is we'd use our horses to scare them and to rear on them, and, and evidently some of them might have taught their horses to fight. Uh, and, uh, and then they, he said, and we, and we had steel, and all they had were clubs with obsidian in them. And if you ever got cut by one of those little pieces of obsidian, it's as sharp as a razor, but you can't really stab anybody with one of those clubs. So hmm. I, I learned, my professor said, there was no, uh, there were no horses in pre-conquest America. What? And, and there were no, there was no steel. And so I thought, oh, that makes sense. And I believed him. He had a PhD. He was a legitimate scholar. And uh, so then I got home from summer school in Mexico. And a few months later, my bishop called me in and said, Barry, would you like to go on a mission? And I said, yeah. And he said, any place you wouldn't like to go? And I said, yeah, Mexico. I've been there. And uh, and then he said, well, okay. So when I got my call, my call was to Mexico, northwest no. Mexico, right, right on the border of Arizona and California, you know, that, that area. But wow. when, when I started reading the Book of Mormon, which I'd never read before, couldn't get on in it, uh, when I started reading in the Book of Mormon, uh, I found out that in the Book of Mormon, there was a mention of horses and a mention of steel. Yeah. I thought to myself, who do I believe? Do I believe my religious leaders or do I believe my academic leaders? And well, I was, I was seriously on, had a desire to, uh, to be a good missionary. Uh, 
And so I, I said, well, I'm going to accept the fact that there were horses here and steel here. And then I put, I put the academic facts up on the shelf. Hmm. And uh, I kept thinking a lot about it and a lot about it. But that you've got to have questions to be educated, Carrie. If you don't have a question, it means you don't want to know something or learn something. So when I got home from my mission, uh, I uh, started reading about every uh, Mormon book I could find that talked about steel and horses. Yeah. So I found out a new word that really fits. It says pseudo-archaeologists. People who think they know something about archaeologists, but don't know a damn thing. And uh, so I remember uh, reading all that stuff and all of these weird, weird, weird uh, ideas about Mormon archaeology. And, and while I was doing that, Carrie, I decided to go to college. But now I decided I couldn't be that slacker. You want to talk about a lazy learner. Uh, Russell Nelson keyed me in when he talked about rough, lazy learner. My first experience in college, I was the laziest of the learners. <laughs> my, I was too. <laughs> I, I got four D's and a C, and the C was an accident. But uh, but I decided that I wanted to be something, and I tried to or get into a biology class, but it was closed. And mm -hmm. so. I thought, what else? And I saw Russian offered. So I took a Russian class. And uh, kind of a funny thing, the teacher wore a corduroy suit, probably had uh, leather on his elbows, and he had a tie in a one in a one knot Windsor, so it kind of bent a little bit to the side, and he wore penny loafers. And I remember sitting there in that class looking at him and say, that's how I want to learn to dress. And I thought, and I want to be a I want to be a college professor someday. I, I, that just hit me. Just hit me. The idea hit me. And uh, so, so I, I kept going to school. And, and finally, I, I got a bachelor's degree in, in Spanish. But I finished instead of ASU, I finished at Northern Arizona. Then from uh, where I minored in Latin American studies and majored in, in uh, Spanish, and I went out to the University of Iowa, uh, and I was a teaching assistant there. And I got to teach. And one time, uh, one time, one of my major professors said, "I want all your graduate students to know that, just like people and football players take big pride in playing in the Big Ten, I want you to know that you can take big pride in teaching in the Big Ten." And I thought, "Well, that's neat." But I'm going to tell you something. I, I had a class at Iowa. It was the hardest class I ever took. Probably the reason why my Levi's don't fit to this day. I think I worked my butt off. Uh, and I, oh, Carrie, it was so hard because, because it was advanced grammar and composition, but it was all in Spanish. I didn't even know advanced grammar and composition in English. So even though I understood every word he said and could hear everything, every and the guy lectured in Spanish, of course. And, sure. uh, but I didn't know the translation. And so the second semester, it was a six hour course. Uh, oh. and, it, and the second uh, three hours, uh, I got a C, 
Well, in C, in college, C's in graduate school, C's like an F. Yeah. And and so I said to myself, "Dang, I'm going to work like hell. I'm going to have to work really, really hard." Yeah, baby. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, baby. Mark well, Crispin's going to love you now. Anyway, I uh, so I I worked really hard through summer school, and it finally started making sense to me, came to me. And I got an A, a in the course. And uh, and I transferred out of Iowa and went back to BYU. And and they, they hired me to be a teaching assistant there. And now what year was that that you were at BYU? 69 through 72. Okay. Around that time. Anyway, uh, uh, when I got to BYU, I could teach. Spanish 101, 102, I could speech 220, you know, some of the intermediates between that. And then I could teach advanced grammar and composition. The difference was just a year when I couldn't have taught that ever before. I could always speak Spanish well, but I didn't know very much about the insides and outsides. And I had to become an expert. And that class was the hardest class I ever took. But it really helped me because Carrie from B. Well, as at BYU, they chose me to teach in their semester abroad in Spain. Oh, really? Oh, how cool. Well, that works out perfect then. Now you get to go over to Europe. I did. And we, we were there for a whole semester. And uh, and I loved it. And while I was in, uh, I'll come back to my education later, but something happened in Spain. While I was in Spain, uh, a friend of mine uh, from BYU was uh, who, who was full-time faculty and had to publish uh, every year, or every two years, whatever it was, uh, he needed a subject to to write about. And uh, at that time, the Man of La Mancha, the musical, was a big thing. And I and the and the Mancha's right in the heart of Spain. And all it means is a big old spot. Like if you drop coffee on your shirt, that's you, you say, ah, me Mancha. You know, I, I got a big spot. And so I said, Let, what, why don't you write about that? We can do an uh, agricultural investigation of the region. Uh-huh. And we went to all kinds of government offices and all kinds of places. Then one day we decided to go down into La Mancha and uh, get to know it. And as we were going through a little town called Madridejos, up to our right, up on a hill, we could see a castle. Didn't see I've got any. a picture of that castle. Hang on. Okay. You keep talking. I'll get the picture. Anyway, and, and I could see that castle. There and, we and go. There, there it is, guys, right there. That was a Roman castle, and it was built before uh, Christ was born. It was it was a uh, AC, or what would we call before the Common Era uh, yeah. castle, and uh, uh, and then. Uh, next to the castle, we saw a bunch of windmills. And these windmills that you can see here, these are modern windmills. And there was a fellow there, an, an old man, who had been uh, imprisoned in the Spanish Civil War because he's on the Republican side, and they lost. But he was one of the few people left in Spain who could build a windmill from the ground up. And so he built all these windmills, and these windmills, then the country of Spain would sell these windmills, uh, and, and on, the, on the doorstep of each windmill, it would say, 
donated by the people of Luxembourg to keep the memory of, of, of Don Quixote alive. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was really kind of neat, uh, Care. And, yeah. and he took me inside and he let me crawl all over and I could see all the wooden beams and all the wooden cogs that we had carved. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and he told me that, the, uh, I said, so why is, what's that castle over there? And, and why are you building these windmills here? And he said, well, the castle uh, was on the hill because below the hill, it was a big hogback hill. It, I think it went up maybe two or 300 feet tall. And then it went, it went across, just straight across. And, uh, and uh, at the bottom of the hill, the Romans had a camp. And the Romans uh, couldn't live in Spain very easily. They had to keep legions there because Spain became the, the granary of the Roman Empire. And uh, it also provided a lot of the horses for the Roman Empire. Yeah. Uh, but the Romans, when they, the people who lived there were called Celtibidos or Celtibidos, because Iberian Peninsula and stuff like that. And uh, they would come after the Romans every once in a while and then the Romans would have to go up into the castle while the, uh, while the enemies, uh, the rebels were uh, laying that siege. Yeah. And I went in. He said, "Would you like to go into that castle?" And I said, "Oh man, yeah." He said, "It's not. Uh, it's not uh, open to the public." He said, uh, "No one comes here but a few archaeology students out of Madrid, and they work a little here and there." He said, "But I have a key to the door." <laughs> and he went over there with a skeleton key and opened this little door. It was inside of a big wooden door, and we went in, and it was the, the masonry was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and the guy and I, the guy said, "This castle was built before the time of Christ, and the Repu the Romans came up here, like I just said, uh, when they were in danger, when the uh, when the rebels were attacking their big camp below." And then I said, "What about what about the windmills?" And he said, "Well, the Romans built windmills here, and uh, if you go back to that windmill picture, uh, I don't know if you can see it very well, but." But in some places here, uh, all that was left was the, the, the foundation of old windmills. So they were at least 2,000 years old. And he yeah. said that the Romans, Spain had so much grain and wheat, you know, grain. Uh, the Romans would bring grain up there so that they could feed the people in the camp. And they had about, he said there were 15 foundations here. He said, so with those 15, 15 uh, windmills, they could grind about two, uh, five thousand tons. Was that five hundred tons? Of, no, not tons. Five hundred pounds, or maybe uh, two thousand, two thousand pounds of grain a night, because they needed it for their bread. Well, it was a pretty big operation. So yeah, yeah. it was. And so uh, he he told me he said he told me some really interesting things about the castle, but it doesn't have anything to prove what I want to say. But he said but, but uh, this was built before Jesus. Was yeah, it was built before Jesus, yeah. and in the tenth century, if you've ever heard of El Cid, the famous uh, Spanish warrior. Oh yeah. Uh, they said that his only son, which is not mentioned in the poem of El Cid, was was killed there in defense of the castle a thousand years before I got got there, and then he said. So he told me all about this, and then uh, so. My friend and I really learned a lot that day about about Roman archaeology. 
yeah. wrote an anthropology. And so a couple of weeks later, I, I was with some of my students uh, from BYU, and we were in a place called Merida. If you ever heard the word emeritus, it means those who have retired. So Merida, uh, uh, one that is retired, Merida, I found a, an amphitheater like the Greeks used to use and the Romans used, and I had my students sit on the seats, on the stone seats, and then I talked to them a little bit, and they could hear me perfectly. And then just over the hill from the amphitheater was a, a miniature uh, coliseum. They called it a circus because it's they're round from circle, and that's where the word yeah. circus. Circus, uh huh. Yeah, and and uh, and they, they had uh, that was where they used to have gladiator fights, lion fights, animal fights, and all that kind of stuff. And I realized that the Romans were ubiquitous in Europe. After after being in Spain for uh, a semester. Uh, all of us got to travel for three weeks through Europe, and just about everywhere I went in Europe, there'd be some reminder that the Romans had been there. Oh, yeah, and so when well, was that, yeah, so that's a very important concept that helped uh lead you to your faith crisis, isn't it? Well, it did, but you know, Carrie, the funny thing about this is I may be one right now, uh. And I left the church only six years ago. I guess seven years now. I left in, I think, in, well, maybe six. Might have left in 16. But uh, the thing was, after being in Europe, I came home and uh, I, I went to graduate school. I went to, I mean, I finally went to college and graduated. And then I went to graduate school. So I went to, I started graduate school at NAU in Northern Arizona University, and then I went to Iowa, then I went to Brigham Young, and then I went to Illinois State, and then I went to ASU, Arizona State. Uh, and, and I completed enough courses and enough graduate work to have the equivalent of two masters and a specialist. And so when I went to work here at the, uh, the college, at Northland Pioneer College, where I've taught for the last I taught for 41 years. Uh, I was able to. Uh, oh shoot! I lost my train of thought there. This anyway. Uh, I to get to be employed, I had to get a license. I had to get a certificate, and so I was certified in Spanish, English, and reading. And, and so my degree was perfect for me for teaching in a community college, and and I really loved it. And at the community college, uh, Carrie, I taught Spanish and English and uh, reading. Yeah. And that, so that if I, if there weren't enough courses for me in one area, they'd always find another one for me in another area. But what was so wonderful about knowing all of these things is I had a buddy who, who married a Mexican girl, and uh, he loved Mexico. And so he used to he used to be our main Spanish teacher. I was, I didn't, I was never a main Spanish teacher. Uh, but I was his boss because of the language, I was the head of the languages. And so he, but he would sponsor trips to Latin America, uh, to actually to Mexico. And so Kerry, he took us through all of the major 
uh, archaeological uh, sites in Mexico. I, I've been in Palenque, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. Hey, I've and got, I, uh, hold on, I've got some, keep talking, I'm just saying, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get I've got, there we go, I knew I had a slide that had the temples. That's, that's Chichen Itza. Yeah, that's uh, Chichen And I've been all through there, and when I, I was young enough when I first went that I could go through, I could go through all of the buildings, so I've been to a, a place in Oaxaca called Monte Alban, I've been mm -hmm. to Big Heads over in Villahermosa. Uh, Tabasco, and uh, I think that's the right state. I hope it is. So I've been to and I've been to Nuevo Casas Grandes and stuff like that. And uh, but before I I ever went to uh, start looking at pyramids and things, I I once when I was a, a graduate student at Illinois State studying my for my master's in English, a buddy took me down to Cuba, Illinois, which is on the Illinois River that goes between Chicago and St. Louis. And he's and he that was the first time I had ever heard that there were Indian mounds. And the and so the mound I visited there was called the Dixon Mounds. Yeah, kind of like that serpent, but only it was it was a big it was it was more like a, a small pyramid. Uh-huh. And so the guys the guys told us, he's the, uh, the guy that was the park ranger or whatever, said, we've dug in this mound and we've looked at the bones and we've, we've carbon 14 them. And he said, the oldest person we can find in this mound was 40 years old. He was probably the patriarch of the group, hmm. indicating that uh, the ancient peoples uh, had hard lives. They would chew yeah. themselves to death. Yeah, you know, forty would have made him the elder. Yeah, yeah their, their teeth would go, you know, and and uh, all other things. Even though they had lots to eat, they didn't have anything to soften their grain, <laughs> so they had to grind it up and stuff, and and leather and whatever. But uh, so I would I became interested in ancient American archaeology, and I took a great courses course on ancient North America, and. The professor, uh, the professor said that uh, all of the people that lived in, take, uh, right now you got Cahokia over there in the right-hand corner. Right? Yeah, this is another one of the mounds. I, I put together three or four different slides of the different areas and mounds. They were all over America, but none of these are identified with any Book of Mormon people that we're aware of yet. That's what the fellow said. He said the people who died in these cities and the bones we have found and uh, that are ancient enough to look at, they are the same people. They are related to the people who are alive today. The Native Americans who live in and around that area are the same people as their ancestors were a thousand years before or 2000 years before. And so there was no evidence ever that there was such thing as the uh, uh, as a Lehigh civilization, and that's what I wanted to talk about a little bit. Unless you want to ask me a question, but when you finish, I'd like to go on with what I learned about comparing the Roman civilization to that of the Lehigh. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. By the way, RFM says hi. <laughs> you remember hey, him? You know, <laughs> I do remember him. He's he's uh, 
one of the best people I've ever met that I've uh, that I've never seen. Uh, Me too. But I love RFM, and I think he's probably. Oh, one don't of tell him that; it'll swell his fat head. RFM. I used to teach English, and I used to teach argumentation, and I was a novice compared to you. I'm not kidding you. And when I when I hear you take an argument apart, I think, damn, I wish I could do that. The only one I think is probably as good as RFM is that little Nemo kid from England. He's good, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's fun to listen to, too. He just gets right to it, man. When I grow up, I want to be like all these guys, even though I am already their grandfather. I was sitting there listening to Nemo talk, and I thought to myself, you know, I've I've taught a lot of bright, bright kids. And I, I and, and it was my in my area, it was my responsibility to know things. And I could tell how bright Nemo was what, yeah. early on, early, early on, but not until he put that argument together the other night was I ever yeah. impressed with how bright the young man is. Nemo, if you hear that, contact me sometime and I'll I'll whisper in your ear something really nice like good job or something. <laughs> Well, this is one of the interesting things of the uh, crisis within the church, I would think, is oh, it is. seems like all of the bright people, you know, it's like I told Dennis McDonald last night on the show, I said, uh, in Mormonism, they tell you, you can believe anything at all you want, just shut up about it and don't talk about it yeah. here in church. And he just laughed like crazy. He said, that is absolutely absurd. And I said, it is. That's why we're all coming to the YouTube. Because if you don't want us talking about it in church, we're going to talk about it here. So, Yeah, I, I wanted to tell you what I learned in Spain. When, I went, when, I, when I went around Spain, I saw old Roman ruins. I, I even went to a, to a church that was built in 1600, a Christian church. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was at, that was when the Visigoths came in and took over Roman possessions in Spain. But right. I, saw, I saw evidence of the Roman, Roman uh, civilization everywhere in Spain, uh, everywhere, I mean, all over. When I went to Italy, when I was in, uh, uh, I was in a salt mine near Salzburg, that's where the word salt comes from, salt. And uh, the Romans had a big, big old mine there called the Halen Salt Mines. Then when I went over to Germany, I was at the Cologne the Cathedral, uh, and uh, we couldn't go in the front door because when they were working on the foundation of that really old cathedral, they dug into a Roman site. And so oh. it, was, it was just everywhere. And uh, when I... When my buddy would take me to Mexico and we would go to all of these magnificent archaeological sites, I would go to the museums and and I and we generally always tried to have a really good uh, guide, mm -hmm. not not a fly by nighter and not a not a not a uh, pseudo guide, but a, and uh, I would listen very carefully and never once did I find any evidence in my mind. That would indicate that there ever been two civilizations in the in the New World. That there would ever have been a, a Lehite civilization. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, because all the civilizations built on top of the older ones, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. There, there was no indication anywhere that uh, Nephite civilization existed. And my friends uh, Tom Murphy and 
and uh, Simon Southerton have, uh, I've so enjoyed their work on G DNA. And, yeah. and Simon says there's no evidence anywhere in the new world of, no. of haplogroup X2A, which people try to associate with the Hebrews. The, uh, haplo the haplogroup is so old that it probably came to the Americas 20,000 years ago, or maybe a little less, or maybe a little before. Mm -hmm. And and uh, in that haplogroup, it, it, it comes out of uh, Central and East Asia, and uh, but it's also found in Europe and in the Middle East. But that's 20,000 20, years ago. That's long yeah. before the Jews were ever recognized as a people. And, yeah. and so, so when when the natives who crossed that Bering Strait or came down in boats around around there. Um, came, uh, they brought that haplogroup uh, X2A with them, but mm -hmm. according to Simon, there's no relationship between that and the, the group, the things that they find in in uh, Israel, even among the bones in Israel, I guess. Yeah, I've talked to him about that too, and he's told me the same thing. He keeps up on that stuff quite a bit. I had him on a month or two ago, and he was talking a little bit about Ken Kennewick Man and the the horse bones. You wanted to talk about the horse bones. You've studied that stuff a little bit. Well, remember, I, I told you that uh, there's no evidence that horses were ever found, be, uh, you know, modern horses. Horses evidently originated on this continent, and uh, uh, some of them went back into, not back into Europe, but crossing from another direction and went into Europe. But horses were a big animal, uh, and easily recognized and easily snuck up on. And so they think that the the hunters hunter gatherer peoples that crossed just killed them off like they killed the elephants and and the mm -hmm. giraffe excuse me, the camel like animals and and the bear and the right. and stuff like that. And so uh they said they probably last were seen maybe eight thousand BC. Yeah, eight thousand BC. That's way too early. Yeah. yeah yeah, or something like that, or 8,000 years ago. But so they said, but it, they discovered near San Luis Potosí in Mexico, I think that was the area, uh, some horse bones. It was in Mexico, yeah. And uh, they, they checked these bones out, and they said, wow, these people existed, these horses existed at the same time that the Jaredites came, <laughs> yeah. 20, yeah. 2,500 years be uh, before Christ. And uh, and the archaeologist who, who see one of the things is guys if you if you publish under a scientific name, right? Somebody's, somebody's going to read your stuff and they're going to challenge you. And so yeah. the archaeologist that challenged him said, "Wait a minute." He said, "This this is born. This was buried in uh, in the soil, but there was volcanoes in Mexico, so uh, it put a cover on it." And so the, the rain would come and percolate out of the volcanic ash and, and soil and weeds or whatever. And right. it, would, it would coat the bones. And he says, I don't think that that is a Book of Mormon horse. He says, it doesn't. Right. I mean, he said, although the, idea or the, uh, the material that they tested with, uh, anyway, the material they tested, they, uh, they found an, a, a much earlier, later date but probably it was buried there and all of that 
stuff that percolated, percolated, percolated right. onto the bones. Right. Uh, so the only way they'll really know is if they take the marrow. Yeah, it was it was contaminated, so you couldn't yeah. get a real. They couldn't get the uh, marrow in the bone or the the inside of the bone, from what I understood. But that was kind of a big thing for some LDS people. And see, that's where the Mormon apologists will try to stop. What they want to say is, oh, look, bones in the same time slot, that's all we want to know about. When, in fact, it wasn't the bones that was in the time time slot. It was the contamination that came down onto the bones. It, was just, it doesn't help, but they don't want to see that full context if it's faith-promoting. Well, uh, the same thing with, oh, excuse me. The same, the same thing with Kenny McMahon. Kenny McMahon, they think, was buried uh, about 9,000 years ago. But yeah. sometime about three or four uh, thousand years after he had was placed in the soil, uh, there was a volcanic eruption near there, and all of the ash covered that, and the, and so they had a lot of contamination from the rainwater. Exactly. And, uh, so, yeah, uh, some guy wrote a book, kind of like the face of a Lehite, a, a Lehite or something like that, and yeah, another, another, another pseudo archaeologist. Yeah, and, and uh, he said that he he said that uh, or the writer said there's it's impossible. He said all of that contamination was from the groundwater that seeped into the bones, mm -hmm. and he's but the bones themselves show that he was he's uh, maybe six and a half thousand years older. Yeah, so those were those are kind of things I hear and I listen to, and I've always been interested. Well, let me let me go back to comparing what I knew about the Romans, and I'd had the experience of being there. I had seen it, I had sat on, I touched it. You know, I've been, I touched it, I've climbed around it. I got to climb around in that castle, and yeah. And, and so I've been there, I, and I taught, I've taught Virgil, Virgil's Aeneid, which is a Roman story of their hero, their founding, their founding hero, and uh, so when I got home and I. I I was still a Mormon when I came home from my mission. I was still very active and still a believer. And mm -hmm. for some reason, I still believed the Book of Mormon was true. But I had all kinds of questions all the time. And the more and more I, I went to these different Book of Mormon, quote unquote, sites, uh, I started thinking, there's no evidence that any, any other society lived here. Right. And, uh, and it, that didn't appear to me that there was any conspiracy that tried to keep it a secret. I would have thought that if the Mexicans had found out that there had been a white race there uh, that lived alongside the, the dark race, uh, they would have been happy and proud to say, geez, look at this. We have evidence of these people there. But so I don't believe there was ever a conspiracy to hide it. But you've probably seen that that joke. You open up a book and it says uh, Book of Mormon Museum, and then you open it up and there's nothing there. <laughs> Because my, my friend Michael Cole, uh, whom I really respect, and uh, I've never met him, but I've listened to him on John DeLynn, and I've, 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 I've really liked him, and I've, I've read what he said in dialogue. But he said that there is no evidence in or on the ground anywhere no. that another civilization existed. We've never found writing. Not even, uh, what do we call the Egyptian, uh, shorthand Egyptian with the... What did Joseph Smith call it? The Book of Mormon was fully written, written in. 
and, and we've never found uh, we've never found writing on stones or in caves. Oh, there's writing been found and claimed to be ancient, right. but those were mostly hoax, as far as we know. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, it's unfortunate, uh, but that's true. Yeah, yeah, and and there were lots of uh, lots of people saying, well, there's some type of a going something going on here. There's a conspiracy. Uh, they don't people don't want us to want to know about the Lehite, you know, the Lehite civilization. But we've never found anything anywhere. You know, I, I, I mentioned that castle because the Le evidently the, Le the Lehigh people made a temple. And out of stone is the, as the one in, uh, in Jerusalem. And, and, uh, and we've still got a lot of those temples to this day. Yeah. And when but I went to these are Mesoamerican ones. Yeah. And when I went to, uh, uh, oh, let's see. I just lost my turn. I thought again. Uh, anyway, they they uh, they made temples and other stuff. And when I went to the windmills, that's what I was going to say. At the windmills, they had built a structure that they had used, and it was functional, mm -hmm. and still had the foundations that were. Uh, Book of Mormon times, and we've never found anything like that at all, and and so th uh, that really helped me. But I kept following my education, and I, I taught for forty one years at, at my local college here. But when I about the time I was finishing, in the last five or ten years, in my world lit classes, I had to teach. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament. And Gary, what was interesting about that is I didn't feel much like a scholar of that. I'm a scholar in Spanish and a scholar in English. Mm -hmm. But that's my areas of expertise. Otherwise, I'm just almost a pseudo intellectual, you know, a pseudo scholar. But the mm -hmm. fact is, is I do like to read and learn things. And so mm -hmm. I did some really deep dives on the Old and the New Testament. And uh, and, and all of a sudden, uh, I started doubting the scriptures at all. And then I started doubting the existence of God. And today, uh, I don't like definitions much, but probably if you were to ask me if I'm an agnostic or an atheist, I'd say I'm an agnostic because that means you don't know either way. I, I don't know if it's right or I don't know if it's wrong or God exists or doesn't. But mm -hmm. I, 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 would, I would say that I'm probably an agnostic leaning towards atheism. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I put myself at this point. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm seeking, I'm willing to see all sides and listen to all voices and views and test and compare. I mean, that's, that's fun. That's what I've been doing my whole life, whether I was a believer or not. So I continue doing it because I love to learn too, just like you do. Yeah. yeah. And so, so uh, pretty soon, uh, one day, I'd never been on the internet ever. Mm -hmm. I had a computer in my office, and I used it all the time uh, for my uh, schoolwork. Mm -hmm. But I'd never been on the internet until my cousin sent me something, uh, and he says, "Go to this site, and there's a really interesting little uh, faith-promoting story." So I, I looked at that uh, site, and 
and that wasn't very cute or inspiring to me. But up on the top of that site, I saw a place said, two young, two young men go to visit an archaeologist. Well, two Mormon young men go to visit an archaeologist. And as I listened to it, and they said, uh, they said, can you tell us a little bit about the archaeology of the Book of Mormon? He said, there is no archaeology of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> Pretty and gutsy I, missionaries, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's a nine scheisser for sure. And uh, and what I what what happened is my uh, my mind all of a sudden it was a eureka moment, Terry. Uh, Carrie, I have a doctor named Carrie. Terry. Anyway, it's a eureka moment, Carrie. And and what I what happened to me is I went. That's true. That's true. And it, within it's maybe a month's time, I'd resign from the church. And the last thing I was waiting was for the Book of Mormon to be true. So the, the Book of Mormon started my shelf. But I didn't leave the church just because of the Book of Mormon. I left the church because I was dying of a thousand paper cuts. Uh. Yeah. A little in here, a little doubt here, uh, all of that stuff, you know. And, and uh, isn't it fascinating that even with a a church of uh, revelation, they couldn't put band-aids on all those cuts and heal you. They just don't seem to have answers to a whole lot of much of anything. Well, you know, Carrie, now that I've been out of the church for about six years, uh, and I wouldn't say I lost my faith. I would say I discovered reason, and what I meant by that no. is I had to tell myself, cognitive dissonance is a bad thing, son. It messes you up. You can't have two ideas that are contra to each other. That's true. Be healthy mentally, and especially ones that are your part of your life lie. And uh, and so, I just realized that I had to accept evidence. Now, as a college professor, uh, Kerry, I used to teach my students, I'd say, hey, guys, when you have a question or you're going to argue something, you got to figure out what it is you want to argue. But you can't argue anything unless you study about it and, and until you understand both ideas, both sides. And then you have to examine both sides. And if you had a continuum, say, of 100 inches, um, Maybe you could meet in the middle somewhere and to get together, but you had to you had to know the facts. You had to look at the evidence. And if you weren't willing to look at the other person's evidence as well as your own, you weren't you weren't academically healthy. And so I thought I taught my students to do that, to look at it all before they ever started a, a counter argument or whatever it is. But all of a sudden, I, I realized, Barry, you're a hypocrite. You're not doing that about your church. You're not looking at, Carrie, I don't know anything about anybody else's church. On my mission, I met a lot, a lot, a lot of Catholics and a few Protestants, but I never attended their church. I, got a, I, I go to church once in a while for one of my friends to Mass, uh, but I never, I never do anything about Catholicism. I never knew anything about being a Baptist or of an evangelical of any type. Didn't know. Right. And I'd say, I know that this is the true and only church. 
but I was never willing to look at the other side of the evidence. And yet I had always been a skeptic and I'd always, in college I was a skeptic. And I, I on my other courses I had to follow reason. So when I finally left church, what happened to me is that I decided that if I were gonna be honest with myself, I had to look at reason. I had to be an empiricist. I had to look at evidence and I had to weigh it. And I had to weigh one yeah. side against the other side so I could make some kind of decision on that, along that continuum. And uh, so that's, that's what happened to me. That's why I got so interested in Book of Mormon studies. And it, uh, isn't, it, isn't it interesting? Sorry to interrupt you, but isn't it interesting that uh, Joseph Smith actually tried to set the church on that trail when he said, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. And yet today's church is absolutely terrified of inconsistencies, of change, of exploring any other option. The internet's got to be their worst nightmare for that reason. You say you discovered reason. Joseph Smith is the one that tried to put reason into them, and they've refused. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, Joseph is an interesting fellow. I, oh, he is. Yeah. Uh, he's a contrast in, among, in of himself. But the fact is, is if you don't have questions, you don't have contraries. You know, you only right. believe one thing. And so yes. if, if you believe only one thing, uh, you're not very intellectually honest. And uh, oh. especially when it comes to being a member of a, a certain church. And so when I started looking at the evidence, deeper and deeper evidences, uh, and here's what I realized. Here's a conclusion I made out of realizing that the Book of Mormon didn't exist. I realized, I, I said, if the Book of Mormon didn't exist, or the Lehite civilization didn't exist, then there was no people for Nephi and Lehi and all the other guys, Alma, to be preaching to. If there's no people to be preaching to, there was no people to be, to be writing either. And if there was no people to be writing, there was, there was no one writing on gold plates. Mm -hmm. And so I came to the conclusion that Joseph Smith was nothing more than a con man, mm -hmm. a con man, uh, because he tells us all about a civilization that didn't exist. And, you know, Carrie, I've, I've read the Book of Mormon in English, Spanish, French, and Portuguese, and halfway in Italian. And I only read them in the languages other than English because it's such a boring book to me. And I'd, you know, I'd read it and read it another time when President Benson wanted us all to read the Book of Mormon. Well, I remember that era. Yeah. But I found it was so boring that if I was expected to be a good Mormon, then I'd read them. Then, then I said, the hell with it. I'm going to read things about it is I can buy a Book of Mormon for about a buck and a half, and I can get one in Portuguese. And, right. one in and then I could buy a Spanish Portuguese, a Spanish Book of Mormon, and I could buy a French Book of Mormon, and I could buy an Italian Book of Mormon. So I'd, I'd have my English on my lap, and then I'd start reading in Spanish, and anytime I came to a section I wasn't having a hard time with, I'd read the English. And I never found the Book of Mormon to be interesting. I, I read some. I read 
the baptismal covenant that Alma talked about. And I thought that was beautiful. But what, what I realized was that Joseph Smith used to be an exhorter uh, at many of the revivals and uh, many of the churches. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he knew what people were talking about and he knew all these stories. So I think that most of the time Joseph Smith just put in one of those other preachers' sermon and made it his own. Uh, and that's what appears to me. And well, I mean, wasn't it Alexander Campbell who said he was a contemporary of Joseph Smith? And he yes, said, oh, heck, the Book of Mormon, it's just it already solves all of the controversies of our own day. So obviously, Joseph Smith was interacting with his contemporary environment. I mean, we've got Dan Bogle in the audience and no one's written as much about that as him. So, yeah, what you're saying makes sense here. Yeah. Hey, Daniel. Good to see you, buddy. Uh, but anyway, and so it, it, uh, my conclusion was that if there wasn't such a civilization, we've never seen houses or any ruins where people have lived, then there probably wasn't any people. And if there wasn't any people, there wasn't anybody to write the Book of Mormon. And there certainly wasn't anybody to read it. Uh, and, and certainly anybody to pass it on. And so I just came to the conclusion that it was all bunk and that the writer was Joseph Smith. And if the Book of Mormon, which is supposed to be the keystone of our religion, isn't true, I don't worry about other arguments about what you find in the Book of Mormon. Like, I don't care anything about, uh, what do we call it? What, one line follows the other, the other, what do we, you know, and they kind of, they said it was from the scriptures. I can't think of the word right now. I, I'm I'm a little bit foggy tonight, but anyway, I never saw. I've seen that in other books, uh, yeah. so, and so I don't. If the book, of, I, I take it like this: the Book of Mormon wasn't written from an ancient text, and therefore I don't follow any of the arguments when people get in and say, "But look at all these beautiful scriptures, all these messages." I say, "Yeah, that's easy. Anybody could have written those messages, especially Joseph Smith." because of his interest in religion. But I said, I don't go into those arguments. Uh, and then I, when people start arguing about the book of Abraham, and I've, I've studied that very much, and, and uh, I really appreciate RFM and John DeLynn's uh, interview. Oh, RFM, I can't think of his name. Rittner, Robert Rittner. Yeah, Robert Rittner. And I yeah. thought that, oh, I loved that. I thought I was- Yeah, that was epic. I thought, should I be taking notes? <laughs> but I never worry about that. And I never I, worry. I actually did take notes and I ended up doing an entire series myself. That's kind of what launched my YouTube comeback is my, I did like 18 videos on the papyri in the book of Abraham. And then uh, Gerardo and John Delin had me go on his show and share, uh, share what I discovered with it. So yeah, it's, so yes, take notes, young man. Well, anyway, I never worry about all the other arguments like, well, it could be, instead of being a translation, it could be uh, a catalyst. Right. The thought, I thought, why in the hell did he buy those? He paid, some, what, what was it, about $2,000 or something like that for those uh, um, mummies. And I looked that yeah. up. It was twenty five hundred dollars. 
equivalent. It was what a fifty or sixty thousand dollars in today's money. No, uh, yeah, well, I can't. Yeah, I think so. I think it was. Yeah, and he took that money for people of Kirtland, people yeah. who didn't have much anyway, and and so why didn't he just get get the a hair up his butt and just write it himself? You know, uh, just and tell him that because he translated the book of John or that paper that John evidently left hidden in a cave in the old country and Joseph translated it across two continents in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, I had a question. I had a question someone was asking earlier. Hold on, I took it off. Yeah, Doug Vincent is asking, do we know of any interesting things coming out with the new LIDAR maps that they're making in Central America? Well, I, I probably watch the same programs you do, uh, programs you do uh, Doug. But yeah, they're finding that some of those cities were much, uh, covered much more uh, territory than they thought before. And, and they're finding old buildings and stuff like that. I remember one time I was in Yucatan and I was going out to find a ruin called Coba, not too far from Tulum. And, uh, and so as I went through the jungle with my buddy, we found a little road that kind of led up to the uh, pyramid of path. And along the path, there were little humps everywhere. And I later learned that all those humps were small, small structures that the people had made up leading to the uh, main, the main pyramid which was a, a religious sanctuary built very high. And I climbed up and I looked out through the jungle and uh, uh, I thought, wow, whoever lived here, worked here, had to really do something for this, for this jungle. And so the jungles, I bet, I bet probably uh, Doug, the, with the LIDAR, we'll probably find as much again as we have now. Yeah. I don't well, know. The other thing is they've, They've probably, according to the apologists, such as Lou Midgley and Dan Peterson, that they have now found Nephite and Lamanite ruins. They're just mislabeling them as Mayan and Aztec. <laughs> well, that, you, you know as well as I do, uh, that's parallelism. You find a lot of parallels that you say, wow, that could have been in the Book of Mormon. That could have been in the Book of Mormon. That could, but a parallel, it's kind of like, what is it? Uh, what do we say? A probability, or a possibility is not a probability. There you go. Right. And, right. and uh, so it's kind of interesting there. So I, I, when I read all of this other stuff, I don't worry about it anymore because I said to myself, screw it, Barry. You're, you're just going to get, uh, you're just going to get messed up if you keep trying to answer everybody's argument. What did you, the conclusion you came to with the Book of Mormon might be good for you, and it could be for other people. If there wasn't a, a Lehite civilization, yeah, then Smith made it up, and if Joseph Smith made it up and tried to sell it, he was a con man. And if he was a con man, he certainly wasn't a prophet of God. And we're not talking about small imperfections. Joseph Smith didn't have a lot of small imperfections. Hell, he had a lot of great big ones, like marrying a girl who's just two months or a couple of months short of her 15 person. That's or, just a mere detail. Come on. Yeah, so I don't, I, those things don't bother me anymore. I, and I, 
I hear them and I, I join in a discussion once in a while, but I, I just say, I, the, the Mormon church, uh, at my present understanding is that the Mormon church is, uh, is a fraud. Uh, uh, which I've read a lot of, lots and lots of, doesn't mesh with reality. The Book of Mormon. <laughs> It's, it's interesting, too, Barry, that uh, when I was an apologist, um, I remember it, we were in an email list and several of them, probably a dozen of the apologists started banding together and combining their research skills on this subject of polygamy. And they asked me to do it. And I said, uh -uh, I'm, I'm not going to touch that subject. I'm, I'm going to stick with the much more credible subject of the Book of Abraham facsimiles. Yeah. You know, but one thing I learned about polygamy. terrified of the polygamy issue. And now I do not. Now that I've oh, read it, now I know why. Yeah. I think of Brigham Young. Uh, and uh, by the way, he's my wife's great-grandfather. But uh, I think of Brigham Young and, and how Joseph Smith snookered him. But one of the things Brigham and, and the other boys that later became the hierarchy of the Utah church is say, it's a, you go ahead and ask that girl. And, and uh, you know, any man who doesn't have any scruples, uh, even me, and I have a couple, I would have mm -hmm. been pleased if someone said, you can have that woman. And it's not a sin. You can you can sleep with her. You can do anything you want with her, and she's yours. But when, when after the, the Mormon Church, uh, after the Brighamite Church got to Utah, who were the men that had the most wives? The, yeah. the, the authorities, right? First presidency, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the apostles. And how did they how did they afford those wives? They didn't. Most of them didn't have jobs of their own or way to bring an income. Uh, they 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 were sucking off the tit of the church, and uh, that's how they were getting their money. See, my grandfather sometime, uh, my great grandfather uh, was called on a mission. I think maybe in the late seventies, eighteen seventies, and. Uh, he was married to one woman, but before he left uh, to go on his mission to England, the church made him take another wife. Mm. And now he's part of the, the criminal group because there were already marshals in there trying, there's federal marshals in, in, in there trying to find polygamists. So the church uh, made my grandfather a liar uh, yeah. And they made him a criminal. He married he because bigamy was against the law in the United States, no matter where, when, or what. And also, when he, they put him on the train, he went so far on the train, and then a, a, a group of horsemen stopped the train. My grandfather got off, and they rode up around for a while, and they finally picked the train back up further down the line, and they'd ridden away because people knew where the marshals were waiting to stop the train looking for people like my grandfather yeah so, so you know all of that stuff was so so awful hey let me tell you a story about my 
great, 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 great grandpa that my good friend Flat Pat brought up. Uh, while some of yours were forced into polygamy, my, I believe it's great, 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 great. I believe it's four greats, Peter Schertz, grandpa. Uh, he was known as the Daniel Boone of the West once we got, they got over into Utah. Brigham was always sending him down to southern Utah to settle Escalante and all of the old southern. He helped settle Las Vegas and all that, right? So he did that for about 20 years and came up north to Salt Lake. And he told Brigham Young, he said, you know, I'm ready to be a polygamist. I'm ready to take another wife. And Brigham Young said, oh, no. No, Peter, he said, what I want you to do is go down to Arizona and, you know, explore around and settle, settle some. And Peter said, no, I, I, I can do this. I want to be a polygamist. I'm ready to be a polygamist. And Brigham Young denied him. He said, no, no, I'm not going to. And so basically my great grandfather flipped Brigham Young the bird, flipped him off and said, kiss my I was ass. really lucky. And left the church. Yeah. I met, I met, did he? Yeah. Thank goodness. I, you, you know, my, I met my grandfather and my mother was, she was growing up, used to say, but grandpa uh, uh, had his farm and ranch in Lyman, Wyoming. And the, the township of Lyman was his farm and ranch. And the church asked him to give it, to, give it away to make it a town there. So he gave it to the church and, and they, they uh, did all the real estate and all the measuring and became Lyman, Wyoming. But in, in this little town of Lyman, uh, my grandfather built a beautiful home on this side of town for one wife and a beautiful home on this side of town for another wife. And uh, yeah, uh, and they were they looked just exactly alike. And I'd never known that until about 10 years ago when my mom took me there and told me about it. But she said when she would go to go to see her grandma, they always called her grandma. But when she would go to see his wife, his other wife, they would call her aunt. And I can't remember the name anymore, but, but uh, my grandpa, so my, my great grandpa had about, about 20 kids there in Lyman, Wyoming. Uh, I'll be darned. Yeah. So I met the old man and I really liked him. And he's about the age I am now when I met him and I only met him once. He came walking up the street and he looked like my grandpa. Yeah. And, and I thought, Wow, and I got to, I got to shake this big tough man, good looking old fellow, kind of like me, you know. Yeah, not, a lot. I thought you was going to say he was. Oh yeah, brag I do. Of course, and nobody believes me when I do. But so what? So anyway, uh, I, that was just just some of those things that I learned, and as, as I studied church history, I was so, so disappointed. And I remember on my mission. I don't think I could have ever testified to the truthfulness of the translation of the Book of Mormon if I had to tell them that Joseph Smith transla translated it with a rock in the hat. It's not that, that if you've noticed that rock isn't even opaque. You couldn't see light or anything. And, and so anyway, I, uh, I can't believe that I would have said, I know. With no, yeah. no, yeah. no doubt yeah. uh, that. Uh, the Book of Mormon is true. And I, so I'm so grateful that even at 70, I was 75 when I retired. And even at 75, 76, it, yeah, I was 75 when I retired. So that'd been 70, 2016. 
Anyway, when I retired, I'm so glad that I I broke away from the church. And and I'm so glad that my experiences in life, I'm kind of Marco Polian. You know, Chair, I I've uh, lived uh, in three countries. I think I've visited 15 foreign countries. I've swum in the Atlantic and in the Pacific and, and in the Caribbean. I've uh, I've traveled a lot just by accident. None of it was planned or prepared, but I was I was curious, and I was a good listener, and so I learned a lot of this stuff. So that when I was ready to leave the church, I was really ready. Oh, yeah, yeah, and. Um, so, so you mentioned you mentioned to me that you had a uh, a study that you presented to a group of scholars of the college about a five page study on the the ability to use critical thinking. Uh, yeah, would, would you like share to some of that with us? I would like to see well, what you learned in the lifetime of knowing and teaching and in your travels and all. Uh, distill some of that kind of wisdom to us. That that would be very interesting to hear. Let me say to those of you listening, I'm going to do some reading because it, this was a uh, a speech I was asked to give at uh, Phi Theta Kappa, which was the uh, the education fraternity of, uh, of the community colleges. Right. And so I thought, what would I want them to know? And I thought I thought about critical thinking. Mm -hmm. I thought that's a really important thing, but you, you can't just be a critical thinker because you decide to be a critical thinker. You have to have some concepts in your mind. And so I titled the speech and, and I'm not going to read it all, but if you guys, if you carry, if I get boring, just go ahead and sleep more. Okay. He said, you're never I, boring. Things I'd like budding scholars to know. Point one, to be a scholar, you must accept that people have some control over their behavior and to that extent are responsible for their actions. Otherwise, how could you discuss moral issues? Also, you can become motivated to approach problems creatively and critically only if you affirm that people have control over what they say and do. You must believe that careful thinking can make a difference. Second, to be a scholar, it is wise to be open-minded. Not so open-minded that if someone turns you upside down, your brains would fall out. But uh, <laughs> having, having an open mind does not mean you don't make judgments, moral or otherwise. Teach yourselves to be willing to look at all sides of an argument before you judge it. Once you have made an honest, well-educated investigation of all the facts, then you can make a judgment and form your opinion. Bear in mind, that your opinion is still only an opinion. And remember that sometimes enough information is not available to make judgments and opinions at all. The result of such acknowledgement is that your peers will see you as open-minded and welcome to their world. Three, to be a scholar, you need to know the difference. This is what I really want to emphasize. You need to know the difference between fact an opinion or truth and opinion. Truth is that which truth is that which is so about something, the reality of, of matter. As distinguished from what people wish, 
were so, believe to be so, or assert to be so. No one can become a good thinker without acquiring a nature, a mature understanding of the, na of the nature of opinion. Okay, it is important to realize that people do not create truth. Yet progress depends on the curiosity and the interest of people, uh, the drive to find the right answer, the desire to know the truth. A theory is an opinion about a subject. And as you know, not all opinions are, are equally valid, valid. A good theory, like a good opinion, is well thought out, well researched, and well tested. A poor theory is just the opposite. Do theories change? Yes. Does truth ever change? No. The truth will be changed by our knowledge. The truth will not be changed by our knowledge of our ignorance. One way to spare yourself any further con confusion about truth is to reserve the word truth for the final answer to an issue. Get in the habit of using the word belief, theory, and present understanding more often. Doing so will have the added benefit of making you more willing to revise your ideas when new evidence appears and cast doubt on them. To be a scholar five, four, you need to learn to make value judgments. Many people say it's wrong to, to debate moral issues and make value judgments. However, the view is shallow. A value judgment if value judgments were wrong, ethics, philosophy, and theology would be not would not be acceptable courses in a college curriculum. It is not undemocratic or non-politically correct to challenge expressions of judgments because judgments are only as good as the evidence that supports them. Over the Boy, you of ought to, hey, you ought to repeat that one again. Repeat that one again, would you? That's really important. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I'll get to it a little bit more. It is not undemocratic or uh, non-politically correct to challenge expressions of judgment because judgments are only as good as the evidence that supports them. There you over go. The, over the course of human history, judgments based either on insufficient evidence or a narrow interpretation of evidence has caused a great deal of problem. For example, we knew about uh, fossils we know about huge bones from time immemorial. But when the people would see them, especially among the Christian times, they would say, oh, those were animals that were killed in Noah's flood. Or, or those are God's trying to, uh, the devil's trying to trick us. Mm -hmm. and, and so we never study it. We never would try to get interesting because to be so, do so would go against God and his preachings. Hey, Barry, I'm not trying to interrupt you, but I have a... I have a good patron and a good friend, JC. He's saying he loves your talk. Can we get a written copy? You and I need to somehow be, after, once we're done here, I'll get some written copies of this from, or do you know someplace where they can go to read it or get a copy? No, no, I I, I just have one on my uh, computer that I can print out and send to you. I tried to send it through the, today, and I don't know. I tried two I, times. I, know. I, I, I couldn't get a copy. Otherwise, I would send it to you, JC, but uh, you'll need to get a hold of uh, Barry. Uh, well, I'll I, tell you what. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Talking about judging cultures and stuff like that, 
For example, if you if you if there's a culture that where women have no rights and they're treated as second class citizens, you and I should be able to to discuss those things, shouldn't we? And we should be able to make value judgments. Yes. You think? Uh, here's an interesting story. Uh, an old fellow in Brazil. This is in the last in the nineteenth century, eighteen seventy eight or something like that. Anyway, this old fellow shot his wife because she went to the zoological garden without his permission. And uh, when they, they they charged him with murder, but the judge said he was only protecting his his reputation and his rights as a man. They were challenged by his woman not listening to him and doing what he said. She was a, she was guilty, and so so they set him free. Wow. Uh, he was he was protecting his his manhood. Wow. And, and yeah, so so don't you and I have to make discussions on such subjects? So we have to discuss those things. Let me read you this. We must make value judgments about our own culture and that of our neighbors in the world. Is it legitimate for us to pass judgment on the moral standards of another culture if we do not honestly by doing good thinking about the issues? See, wait a minute. Is it legitimate for us to pass judgment? On, let me get some more light on that. Ah, hell, I should have done that for a long, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, he or vi he or. Let there be one. You know, yeah, I as a I as a reading specialist. Uh, <laughs> we want we must make value judgments about our own culture and that of our neighbors in the world. It is legitimate for us to pass judgment on the moral standards of another culture if we do so honestly by doing good thinking about the issue, getting beyond generalizations and examining the particulars of a case. For example, we can say that any society that treats any man or woman as inferior or places less value on their lives than the lives of those in power is, is mistaken and is acting immorally. And so I think that's kind of important. And kind of finishing off here, uh, I like this last one, point five. Oh, let's see. This goes back to cultural judgment. When you and I treat with prejudice any person who has broken no laws or has done society no harm, we are acting immorally. We can say that, we? Wouldn't that be our judgment? Yeah, yeah, good point. When in Rome, do as the Romans do is kind of shitty. Excuse me, excuse me. Oh, it's kind of awful. If you think about it, and, and so, but here's the last one, and and you know one of the great things of my travel for me has been, it kills a lot of prejudice. You meet people from everywhere, and if you spend enough time with them, if you don't learn to love them, you learn to really like them. So here's here, here's the last one. Okay. Finally, to be a scholar, you must learn to avoid stereotyping. Learn to be civilized, a civilized indivi uh, individual human being and to treat your fellow men as individual human beings as well. The act of stereotyping shows us that there is something in all of us that wants to drift toward a mob where we can all say the same thing without having to think about it because everybody is alike except the people we don't, uh, the people we hate or persecute. 
Every time we use a word to describe others, we're either fighting against this tendency or giving into it. And by giving into it, we become so narrow-minded as a culture that we can end up destroying our civilization. Sound, kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? When we, fight, when we fight against the tendency to stereotype, we are taking the side of genuine and permanent civilization. Yeah. Our civilization is enriched when we choose to weigh the value of each individual. And that was my that was my talk. And and awesome. I, I organized it and I and I but I but those thoughts are not mine. They're thoughts that I adopted and thoughts that I respect and thoughts I've tried to and principles I've tried to live. But mm -hmm. I have to thank other scholars who shared those ideas with me. And I just one day went around that I've got to give this talk. I know what I want to talk because I'm talking to the brightest. And I said, what would I like scholars to learn to do? And that was that's why I, I wrote that talk. And, well, uh, thank you for sharing that with us. We may not be scholars of your caliber, but we love the information and we will try to utilize it. So very good. Terry, I know what gaslighting is. I'm, I'm not a scholar of any caliber. I'm a student. Well, I gaslight you, Bear? No. Yeah. As I told my wife, that's a nine scheisser. She didn't like me saying the other part in English. But I, <laughs> but I, I said, the fact is, Gary, I didn't learn how to do fractions until I was in, in my second graduate school. I'd missed them in grade school. So I always thought I was dumb. And I always thought I was a fraud being a college professor. But one thing I can do is I, I listen really well. I observe really well. Yeah. And, and that's always been a blessing to me. And I have a fairly good memory. And fortunately for me, even at 81, I still have my mind, even though I'm feeling a little muddy-minded tonight. It's probably because I'm sleepy. But the fact is, Kerry, I'm not a scholar. I'm a student. And that's all I want to be known as. There's the key right there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When we stop being students, when we get to the point to where we say, well, I know, then you shut yourself off from all knowledge or yeah. learning more. Yeah. I love that. Yep. To, to be ready to talk to you tonight, I was going to talk to you a little bit about steel because the Book of Mormon talks about steel. And so to do that, I, I did some really deep, deep diving here the last two or three days. And the fact is, is I'm just grateful that I have a vocabulary so I can understand what I'm reading and, and then I can develop concepts. But, right. and, and that goes back to something that's really important to tonight's discussion. There's no evidence of smelting, at least in Eastern North America, before the conquest. Uh, none at all. That would be the heartland area and stuff like that. They found there, we have a lot of pseudo archaeologists in and out of the church, and they'll take any little thing and try to make it into some big thing. They do. Yeah. But they've never found, see, when you make iron, which is the precursor of steel, steel and iron are the same thing. But when you make iron, they, they both melted about 2,800 20, degrees Fahrenheit. But, but to make steel, you have to put so much 
alloy and other stuff in it, like carbon. You have to yeah. put charcoal and and you have to have a really really hot fires with you know with a lot of air to melt them. Then if you're going to make enough to have an industry, like the Book of Mormon talks about, where they armed all of their armies with swords, helmets, shields, and spears, and you know stuff like that. Uh, Breastplates and helmets and everything. Yeah. 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 And the fact is, is we've never found any slag pits where iron or uh, steel has been smelted. In the now, that, now, explain to us why that's a big deal, because when you were telling me that, I didn't really catch the significance of that until you expressed that to me. This is really big. So take a moment and why is it such a big deal that there are no slag heaps across the Americans? Well, when I was younger, I I I, I worked for a Kennecott in Arizona. And oh, the yeah. smelter, Kennecott smelter was down in a place called Hayden. And at nighttime, if I drive around this hill a certain time, they're dumping the flag from the smelter. And that's mm. like volcanic rock. It hardens hard and it has all the flavors of the stuff that was uh, it was smelted with. But slag is just the liquid rock and the ore, and it, that comes from the ore. And then it, uh, when the ore separates and they pour it into different, uh, different parts from the furnace, uh, they keep the slag and they bring it out. When they pour it, it's all red hot. And I can I could watch it just running down the hill, but mm -hmm. anytime when I'd pass, it was and they'd been using that slag pit for who knows how long, maybe a hundred years. Uh, but the thing thing is, the slag doesn't doesn't deteriorate. It never deteriorates. It's stone. So they have never found a slag pit with iron uh, or steel. Yeah. And so because that they don't rot, they can't come up, an apologist can't tell us, I mean, justifiably anyway, that, oh, well, the weather warmed down and out or the, they washed away in the elements or whatever. That's not what slag heaps do. And if they have that in industry, these heaps can be hundreds of feet high. Oh, yeah. Especially around Pittsburgh. Can you imagine? Yeah, and they had so. But one thing that slag must have been good for is to make highways, or to cover uh, roads, you know, to put gravel on the old dirt roads. Yeah. Uh -huh. yep. So, yep. so anyway, uh, that was one of the things that I had to study just recently. Again, I, I knew all of that stuff, but I wanted to try to put it together. And so, all I'm saying is, if I need to know something, I'm so grateful for my computer. And I'm so grateful for my books because I nearly died about five years ago. And it was my fault. I did it to myself. And they woke me up. My wife said, to hell with that, Barry. And they sent me for the EMTs and they took me to the hospital. And I was in a mental hospital for about five months. Oh, wow. And one of the hardest things I've ever had to learn, Gary, is to live again to even want to live again, to even desire to live again. But there was a time, probably about three years after I got out of the hospital, if you've ever seen a blackout curtain, and maybe in movies you'll see it, and they'll just open it up a little bit and you see a sliver of light coming through. Mm -hmm. And then a little more, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's how my intelligence, 
and my intellect came back to me, my, my desire to live. And all of a sudden, Gary, I got so thirsty for knowledge. Once I decided to live, I decided as long as I'm alive, I want to live and I want to know and I want to study. And, yeah. and so that's kind of who I am. I'm, I'm a, we are kindred brothers after all. That's what I think, too. It's it's awesome to be able to learn. I told myself when I was 11 years old, I told myself two things. Somehow I was fortunate that I started at age 11. I did. I promised two things. One, I never have a boring day, and I haven't. And two, I will learn something new every day. A, and I have, and it's been a ball. It's fun to learn, isn't it, Barry? Well, really. it's fun to learn to learn again, Terry. I've always been curious, and if anybody were to say, "What kind of an intellectual are you?" I'd say, "Well, I'm a skeptic." Mm -hmm. because skeptics were the guy; they were the guys who protected the other people. They they were the ones who have people get the concepts right and, and when they were wrong skeptics were were right. kind of guides and uh, in rome and greece so if i would be anything uh, i'd like to be called a skeptic but mm -hmm. i had to, i had to learn to live again and think again and and i I've, I've studied so much you know Kerry, i i read books in french and spanish and portuguese and english uh I, but I'm losing some of that because I'm not reading as much as I used to. But I love to read and I love to learn and, uh, and I love languages and stuff like that. So it's been, it's been a nice life for me. And I just wanted to share that, you know, I'm 81 years old. Every night I go to bed, I don't know if I'll wake up the next morning because yeah. the odds are getting less and less. But I just wanted to share a little bit of, about me with you, my friend, and, and with yeah. some of my Mormon Friends, you know, in the culture, hell, I'm a Mormon boy. You're a yep. Mormon boy. I bet everybody listening here, uh, there might be some that never were. And uh, but there are. I've got a few wonderful non-Mormons in my audience too. But yeah, we're all we're all Mormon folk. That's Welcome, the way my it. friends. It's all good I, I, to see that. But I'm culturally, you know, we were born, and the first things we learned was to pray, and to talk about the church. And when I was a little boy, racism was a big thing in the church. I was born in 1941. Racism oh, okay. was a big thing in the church. Yeah, and, yeah, it and, been. and the stories about why people, why people of uh, of African ancestry couldn't have the priesthood, uh, yeah. was told everywhere. Yeah. So I had to learn, and I'm still having to learn it, to not be. Racist. Racist because me my too. me too out in a racist society. Yeah. The thing about Mormon racism, it wasn't mean most of the cases. It wasn't ugly all the time, but it it could get that way. And it could and it could be that people would say yeah. I had a black friend while I was in graduate school say, say tell me one time she says. We, we blacks never drive Cadillacs anymore. We wouldn't be seen in the Cadillac anymore. So now to show off, we drive BMWs and, uh, and Audis and stuff like that. And she said, because that was part of who people would talk about us. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow. But uh, so 
having grown up in the church, I learned a lot of things that I had to finally, not unlearn, but dislearn. I don't even know if that's a word, but I had to dislearn a lot. Of hey, things. invent the word. You are the professor. You can invent a word. Dislearn. In fact, I'll even spell it for you. D-I-S-L-E-A-R-N. Yes, you're welcome. Okay. So, so that's, that's, uh, that's my life. I, I, I'm a Mormon kid. I'm a Mormon boy. See, I loved road shows and I loved basketball. I loved the sports leagues. I played in them. I loved volley, you know, the volleyball and the, and the basketball and the softball. Yeah. I loved the plays I was in. I loved the people. Any, when I was in graduate school, all I had to do when I meet new people, and it was I'd ask them, oh, you're from so-and-so? And within four, four generations or so, we could connect. Uh, that's how how it was being a Mormon, and yeah. and so all you had to say, what was your mom's name or your dad's name? Uh, yeah. Oh, and they say, uh, yeah, it's it's Johnson. I'm from Snowflake, Arizona. I go, oh, Snowflake. Do you know Raleigh? They go, yeah, he's my uncle. You know, yeah, yeah. And that's how it went. But that was who. That's what my society was. That's what my culture was. And if I were to say that I disloved my disliked my culture, that would be a lie. I loved it. It was right. who I and you don't, you don't have to dislike it and become an enemy of it either. Yeah. The, the crazy thing is, when I was an apologist, the philosophy, the, maybe it was more of a psychology than a philosophy, but if, if you found people who didn't believe what you believed or believe like you believed or who didn't think like you, they automatically, for whatever ridiculous reason, short-sighted reason, they automatically became suspect and a potential enemy. Ooh, oh, no, be careful of, of Sally Smith over there. Or, oh, be careful of Jake Jones over there. They think different about the 10 tribes than I do. Yeah, or they don't. And it causes so much unnecessary idiotic division with you people. You know, I, I learned one of the things I learned in the history, and you've been a good job, done a good job of talking Dan certainly done a good job of talking. Delenn's done a good job of talking about. But when I learned that, for example, the Mormons weren't kicked out of New York, they weren't even chased out of New York. They left New York because Sidney Rigdon had a had a congregation over in Kirtland, Ohio, that wanted Joseph oh, to yeah. be part of them. Yeah. So that was a big boost. Completely free will. Yeah, and the group that he inherited was twice as big as the one he brought. And, and then uh, there, there were a lot of people who got gypped out of land and money in Kirtland. And I'm, yeah. and I'm waiting for your book to come out. So get that sucker out real fast, big, big guy. But anyway, uh, Joseph was chased out of, out of Kirtland because he had lost so much money on building the temple. And remember, he'd already built the people for the mummies. And also... He, he against the law because it was against the law to start a bank in Ohio at that time. Right. He, so Joseph had made an anti-banking society. An Anti-bank. Yep. Yep. And uh, the, they used for their cash to show you that they had reserves. They would put sand in boxes and they would put uh, maybe some hard metal in there in the sand or something. And then they would sprinkle the tops with fifty cent pieces. Yeah. And they would show people their collateral and their reserves, but there wasn't any. 
And so when that bank went down too, many, many of his own people had lost their, their, everything. their everything. And so Joseph left in the night because he was running from the sheriff. And I yeah, think he, yeah. he was running from his creditors. Wherever Joseph went, he left creditors in the lurch. Yep. And what, so, the, so they got to Missouri. And the Missouri thing was not the Mormons are so good and the uh, Missourians are so evil. It was that they were all competing for the same land. And the Mormons kept saying, well, we're not leaving. God gave us this land. You'll have to go. And, yeah. and uh, what's his name? Uh, Sidney Rigdon was the first person who ever gave the... Uh, Oh, what did Boggs say? Uh, what was that order? The, the extermination order. Sidney Rigdon was the first person who mentioned extermination. And he's the one that said, if the Missourians don't leave us alone, we will have to exterminate them. Oh, yeah. Oh, that caused so many headaches with the Mormons. Yeah. I was later, later, when Lilburn Boggs said it, we made him the, the ugly enemy. Right, uh, right. And so, so it was what they did in Missouri that got them kicked into Illinois. Yeah. And they didn't, they weren't close to being kicked out of Illinois yet. They were, people didn't like them and people wanted them gone. But someone said, and I don't know if this is true, but I appreciate Dan would know this if he had tell me, but he said that Joseph, that Brigham Young was a forger and that they were forging a lot of money. I've heard that. There's a book, a new book out in the last couple of years on that subject. I haven't got it yet, but I and will. Evidently, the law was coming after him. So, I yeah. mean, hell, would he, he had, he told them he was going to leave. And he said, we'll leave Naboo in the spring when we can, you know, when we can have the wagons and the horses and our livestock all, all build up. And, and he, but he left in the middle of the night and the cold was so great that they, they rode their wagons from Naboo to, uh, uh, what was it, Kirkuk? Uh, uh, anyway, just across the, across, uh, the river. And uh, <coughs> and what was, a bunch of babies died that, that or were born that night and everything. But why right. did he go in the middle of the night on a coldest, one of the coldest nights of the year? He was running. And you know what? The one way to be safe is to have people around you. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. So that's that's about all I have to say. It's a, but when I learned this history and when I thought about all this stuff, and when I think of all the things that I believe that Joseph Smith has done, uh, I just couldn't remain anymore. My my honesty finally got the uh, best of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I couldn't lie anymore. I couldn't tell half lies. Yeah, my my. In a way, I'm probably the same way. I say it just slightly differently, but I say that as an apologist, I can no longer defend the indefensible, which is more or less saying the same thing you're saying. And so, well, and that's the, that's the you know, that's the evolution of a person who wants to use the best part of what we have in this life, our brains, and don't let anyone else squelch our brains. Use them. Sometimes, I, I must confess, it takes courage. Sometimes it takes a lot of serious effort. It would be much easier to spend Saturday nights, every Saturday night, 
going out, eating on the river, having a delicious steak and lobster dinner and all. It's nice to enjoy the delectables of life, but sometimes to learn, you have to sacrifice a few of those things and get your butt in a book. A book. I tell well, you. You know, people say, <laughs> and I'm gonna get my I'm gonna get my butt in the book. Here's the book. I'm yeah. gonna put it on my chair and I'm gonna sit on it. But that's the not reason, I, the reason I've been moving around so much is I got some pillows under me in my in my desk chair. There you and go. I keep moving and I can't get healthy. But anyway, I was gonna say, you know, you, if you're smart, people will say to you something like, "Well, I wish I was as smart as you." Yeah. Uh, and uh, the fact is, is you have to make a choice. I don't mean smart, because, but if you're educated, because I think we're born genetically one way or another uh, have tendencies towards certain things but uh when uh, when people would say i wish i knew as much about spanish as you did i said would you like to go through the effort that i had to make yeah exactly and and it was you know i look behind you and i see i've got a lot of books in my house gary but i don't have nearly as many as you do but i i gave most of my textbooks and college books to the college, but I've, I've read a lot of books mm-hmm. and that's taken a lot of time. Yeah. And I've done a lot of thinking and that takes a lot of time. Well, and it shows though, because now uh, we can have absolutely awe-inspiring conversations with you because of your efforts yeah. to accumulate all the knowledge when I'm in your age position, younger people than me is going to want to hear the same from me, and I'll, I'll keep on talking too. But that's what makes it so much fun. We have something valuable to say. I mean, look, it's worth every sacrifice. As far yeah. as, and is it a real sacrifice? It's not really. It's more of a pleasure, isn't it? Don't you find that? Oh, yeah. I was going to tell you, Carrie, when I was on my mission, I'd been on my mission about a year and a half. It was a two and a half year mission. I had a mental breakdown. There's a lot of pressure on being on a mission. And I, so I had this mental breakdown and uh, within two or three days I was suicidal. And, uh, and I kept thinking, what had happened? What's happened? What's happened? And I thought back and I had just recently within the last year and a half read a, an article from the, uh, Journal of Discourses, where Brigham Young says, the devils are, the spirits of the devil are all around you. Evil spirits are all around you, just waiting for you to let your guard down. Well, I'm, a, I'm an empiricist. I figured that's it. The reason I feel this way and I'm so afraid and everything, I must have broken, broken the law and God turned me over to the bumpings of Satan. Hmm. Wow. I would like to have all of the money that I, I, I've suffered from PTSD from that incident because I was near death and I was awful. And the rest of my mission was horrible, but I stuck it out because I didn't go home and shame myself or anybody else. But, But when I got home, it wasn't until about 30 years later, I found out my psychiatrist, my psychologist said, Barry, you have PTSD. I said, how would I get that? He said, from the, from that incident on your mission. He said, yeah, you have it. He said, this guy uh, worked with policemen and stuff like that where you have to diagnose uh, uh, 
PTSD uh, because uh, of things that happen on the job. Well, the warfare, the warfare then that gave you your PSD didn't come from an outside source. It came from all the, well, I, mean, I guess it did, all the church teachings. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been suffering from PTSD. I still see a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Uh, I, I'd like to have all that money back. But uh, one of the, the really. You can talk to me. I'll be happy to lend you an arm and the shoulder for free. Well, I would want is ahead, but the fact uh, we've is had, we've had a lot of good talks. But the, the thing is, what I wanted to say is, when I left the church, and when I no longer believed in God, I no longer believed in the devil. In the devil, there you go. I, I think I believe there's good and evil. I really do, and I think men can sure. choose to do it. But sure. that was that was like someone dropping a chain off of my whole body was when I lit the church and I felt so free. And talk about feeling enlightened. I'm not talking about light now. I'm talking about weight. Right? Yeah. And so one of the things I'm grateful for, for being a, an agnostic leaning towards atheism, is that uh, I don't have to believe in an evil spirit anymore. You know, the church would always scare me and, and talk about things. And then I would always, I always felt that I wasn't good enough. And one day I finally came up and I said, to hell, with I'm not going, I'm not going to the celestial kingdom. I don't like, my first temple experience was awful. Exactly. My, uh, oh. I know that, that terrible I, guilt. I didn't like to go to the temple. I didn't like to do home teaching, but I always did. I was faithful. But I didn't like to do so many. I didn't like genealogy, and I right. thought, "Shit, if I hear one or more, one more of these stories in church, uh, where I kind of come feeling good and go home feeling terrible, yeah, feeling so far behind, it was so there was a lot of pressure taken off of me when I resigned from the church, yeah. uh, and because but as I resigned, I'd be someone's servant or something like that. Yeah. Well, Barry. This has been an absolute boatload of fun. I do appreciate you being on the show. This is, you've always, I've always enjoyed talking to you. Barry and I talk quite a bit on the phone together and uh, we have all kinds of war stories. We share back and forth and tell each other, Hey, there's a new book in the bookstore. Go get this one or go get that one or whatever. But, but uh, thank you for all the, all the insight and inspiration and, uh, concepts it's it's always fun to you know part of our culture part of our problem in our culture is we don't respect our elders like we ought to and uh, i'm not calling you an elder i'm calling I you i've earned it <laughs> but it's always good to have the insights from someone i mean you've lived a rich experience full of life uh, you've traveled, you've gotten to speak other languages so that you've gotten to know far better than I ever will other cultures directly, which is absolutely fun to hear about. So, thank you. I hope someday in the future and not necessarily the far future that you'll come on my show again and we can talk again and have some more fun together. Would that be all right? Yeah. Hey, you know, we talked about books. I want to recommend a book. I don't oh, know absolutely. You, I don't know if you can anybody see that turn around? 
but it's called the Skeptics Annotated Bible. And it's, it's the complete King Jen, James section annotated by a fellow that fell out of religion one time and, and thought maybe we ought to know more about the Bible. And, and he also did one called the Skeptics Guide, uh, excuse me, the Skeptics Annotated Book of Mormon and the Skeptics Annotated Quran. And I read it to the Book of Mormon. So anybody want to just go on your ebook and, and just go to uh, Kindle, email, or ebooks. Google it. Yep. You can order. Yeah. Now, this book is, when I bought it, it wasn't very expensive, but now it's, it's over $100. But uh, it's one of the best books I've ever learned to use as studying for studying Christianity. Huh. And, and the Annotated Book of Mormon does a wonderful job of pulling the Book of Mormon apart so you can look at individual pieces. And it's super. If anybody out there wants to read awesome. a, 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 a good read, well done, uh, I recommend it. Thank you. Good recommendation. I'm going to. I found another Christmas present I'm going to get. So, all right, you guys, that's it for here. Um, we are going to head out and don't forget Mormonism Live on Wednesday night with Bill Real and RFM. And then uh, next weekend, I have Charlie Harrell. He is the author of one of the most important books to hit Mormonism in the last decade. This is my doctrine. We're going to be doing some very deep dives on. Mormon methodology and the evolution of Mormon doctrine. So in the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, work hard, sleep good, make friends, smile. It makes people wonder what you're up to. And we are out of here. Thank you again, Barry. It's I'll been you, I'll get you a paper, a copy of that paper. Oh, thank you. Yep. Okay. Take care, Mike.